Uh, well, good morning. At this time, I'd like to invite the kids out that side door with Miss Joy for Jump Start. Uh, you guys will be back by the end of the service. And uh, if you're standing, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter. And we're looking at 1 Peter this morning. Also, uh, I would ask everybody, uh, especially those watching online this morning, if you would, hang around till the end of the service as we have an important announcement to make during the benediction. Uh, But as we dive into 1 Peter, uh, we're looking uh, in a series right now called Sojourners, uh, which is all about how we as followers of Jesus Christ are not really at home in this world. We are sojourning in this life, seeking God's kingdom, right? So Sojourners is our theme. And we're picking up from last week about our identity. All right, so with that in mind, you know, how important is it for us to know our identity? Well, let's hear what God's Word has to say. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking verses through verses 9 through 12. A Christian, hear what your identity is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray and keep those Bibles open. Father, we pray this morning that we would take joy knowing our identity is in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, you know how hard we strive to create our own identities. And Father, this morning we pray that we would learn what it means to receive our identity from you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. Well, in 1999, uh, the New York Times ran an article about a man in his 30s who played a board game one night with his friends, right? The New York Times prides itself as all the news fit to print. It may seem kind of strange that over 20 years ago, they ran a story about a man in his 30s who played a board game with his family one night. Now, he wasn't playing Settlers of Catan or Monopoly. It was actually a board game called Masterpiece. Anyone here ever played Masterpiece? Anyone here a a board game uh, aficionado? Anyone ever played Masterpiece? Well, it's super boring. I have played it. It is not fun. It sounds about as fun as the name makes it sound. Uh, But the premise of the game, right, is you get these little cards, and they're pictures of famous paintings on them. And you, as, you know, the players around the board, you try to guess how much the paintings are worth. The funny thing, though, is that as this man was playing this board game with his family, he noticed that one of the paintings reminded him of a painting hanging in his hallway, He was using a painting to cover up a hole in the wall. And he stared at the card and he figured he would go inspect. So sure enough, he went to the painting hanging up on his wall in the hallway, covering up a hole in the plaster. And he looked at it, at the painting. You know, he'd bought it for practically nothing at a a furniture store just for the purpose of hanging something up to cover the wall. But of course, as it turns out, a quick Google search taught him that he had stumbled across Magnolias on Gold Velvet Cloth, a painting by Martin Johnson Head 
He got in touch with curators using the internet. I mean, I can't believe the internet was around in 1999. That's crazy. He got in touch with curators online and was able to sell it for a modest profit. Within a few months, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston purchased it from him for $1.2 million. So how important was it for this man to know the true identity of the painting? I mean, this painting, this painting on his wall, it had, right, a true identity. It was literally a million-dollar masterpiece by a famed American artist, yet it was discarded. It had sat in a furniture store, and then it was merely used to just cover up a hole in the wall. Yet, of course, when its true identity was discovered, right, now, now it sits in a place for all to behold its beauty, right? So, friends, I, you know, I, I think you know where I'm going with this. If a painting can have that much worth, friends, how much more does your soul have worth? Remember, in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is talking to Christians whom the world has discarded. They have disesteemed. Uh, they think they're really only good for doing menial tasks like covering up holes on walls. But friends, Peter also wants his audience and he wants every Christian throughout time to know that God sees you radically different than that. Radically different than anyone else's opinion of you. You, Christian, in Jesus Christ are given a new identity, not based on your accomplishments or your wounds and not based on what other people tell you or what you tell yourself it's actually based on what Jesus Christ has done for you and who he says you are. Uh, to, to put it another way, uh, think about it this way. As a Christian, your identity is not so much something you create as much as you receive. I mean, think about it. That painting could not create its own worth, right? It had to receive its worth from the painter and the curators who told everybody else, what its worth was. Uh, you and I, Christian, we don't create our identity. We're, we receive it from a God who loves us, from who loves us. Uh, Philip Graham Ryken is one of my favorite preachers. Um, it's sad that he's not preaching anymore. He is now the president of Wheaton College uh, in Illinois. And talking about identity, uh, Ryken said these words. He says, joy is not so much happiness as it is contentment. Joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. It is not, therefore, a spontaneous response to some temporary pleasure. It does not depend on circumstance at all. It is based rather, joy is based rather on rejoicing in one's eternal identity in Jesus Christ. Uh, friends, today is the uh, start of the third week of Advent when joy is our topic. And if you get nothing else from me this morning, I want you to take real joy. I want you to rejoice in your identity in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Peter wants you to do as well. You know, perhaps you think you're just worth nothing or just, you know, all you're good for is covering up holes in the wall. Uh, but friends, let God tell you who you are. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, John Calvin used to say, faith was the empty hands that receives the grace of God. Let your hands be open and let God give you your identity. All you've got to do is receive it. 
So there's two things in our passage that I want us to see about our identity, right? And then he's going to give us sort of application points on how to respond to that. So the first thing I want you to see about our identity is that we are God's people. We are God's beloved people, right? And then because of that, our goal is very distinct, all right? So the first thing is we have to recognize that we are God's beloved people. And then the second thing is we need to recognize that we are sojourners and exiles. Isn't it great when the title of the sermon series shows up in the passage? <laughs> it's great. Makes me feel like I'm not making this stuff up, right? We are sojourners and exiles. And then we have a very distinct goal in response to that. So let's dive right in. Look with me at verse 9. Peter is telling Christians, this is your identity. We talked about it last week some, and now we're continuing with our identity part two. He's talking to believers. Listen to what he says. He says, but you, that's y'all, that's plural. That word you there is plural. You all, y'all, all y'all probably is what he would say. Except you only really say all y'all when people are in trouble, right? You know, all y'all are in trouble, right? You got to be careful with that. It's all y'all, right? All, you all are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then look down at verse 10. He goes on and he says, once you were not a people, but now you are what? God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you are those who receive God's mercy. And then in verse 11, what does he, what does he call you? Beloved. Beloved. Right? So part of understanding and accepting our identity is actually uh, using the empty hand of faith to receive what God calls you, right? To, to hear God's voice louder than anybody else's voice, right? Uh, you know, Jesus says, let those who have eyes to see, see, and let those who have ears to hear, hear. You know, turn up the volume, you know, let your ears hear. This is who you are, Christian. He says that as God's people, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are God's people, and we are those who have received his mercy and his forgiveness because Jesus took our sins on himself on the cross, and now we are totally forgiven. And he calls you and me beloved, beloved. I know that may sound like a funny word, but think about how rich of a concept that is, Christian, that you and I, despite our sin, despite all the times we fail, God loves us, and we are his treasured possession. We are his precious treasure. We are his beloved. We receive his grace. Now, of course, if you uh, hang around with us for a while, you know that we like to look at sort of the broad picture of what the whole Bible is telling. And you may recognize that um, almost everything in this passage that we just read is actually either a quote or an allusion with an A, allusion with an A, meaning a reference, not an illusion, right? It is a, it is a reference back to the Old Testament, right? So um, when does God call his people a chosen race? Well, that's Deuteronomy 10.15. You know, he tells uh, the Israelites when they're coming out of slavery in Egypt, he calls them a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.6. He calls them a holy nation in Deuteronomy 7.6. He also says there are people for his possession in Deuteronomy 7.6. And then that whole passage about, you know, you, were, you weren't a people and now you are a people, you're God's people, and before you didn't receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you know your Bible, you'll know that's Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2, that God is telling his people that now they are receiving his mercy and they are brought into his family. So the first thing you need to recognize then about your identity is that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, um, you are not just in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. Yes, God sees you as an individual, 
But one of the beautiful blessings of being a Christian is that we are brought into his family. And we have brothers and sisters, and we are brought into a community. And community is so important for our identity. Um, You know, when you think about... um, you know, the way the world tells us to shape our identity, it's very much like you've got to do it on your own. You know, you've got to carve out your identity. You've got to carve out all of these successes and then build your identity from scratch. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, don't let anybody hold you down. Uh, but friends, the way we shape our identity is, is, is almost never by ourselves. Um, you know, one of the most profound examples of this is actually in, um, <laughs> it's kind of in a funny book, but I think it's pretty profound, in uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Anyone ever read Frankenstein? Remember, Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein is the guy who made the monster. The monster, uh, the, the guy, you know, that guy, you know, he's walking around with bolts out of his neck, I guess. And in one scene, he walks into a man's house. He's, he's on the run because everybody's, you know, trying to kill the monster and he's running away from everybody. And he enters this house of an old man who's blind. And he knows that the monster needs help and he needs food. And so they have a conversation. And at one of the points, the man calls the monster friend, friend. And the monster realizes that's what he most needs. He doesn't just need to try to figure out who he is all by himself, acting like he's alone in this world. He needs a community of people to identify him and say, you are friend. You belong You matter, and we are telling you that. Uh, Friends, that is what Peter is telling you. You belong. You are part of God's people. And he doesn't mean, when he says you're a chosen race, he doesn't mean you're the right ethnicity, because now in the kingdom of God, people from any ethnicity can come to be part of God's family. You know, the, the image uh, uh, Paul uses in Romans is of God's uh, family as like a tree, and now uh, the, the, all the different ethnic groups are being grafted into God's family. You belong. Even if the world discards you, even if other people mistreat you, even if you don't think you have enough, you know, achievements to be proud of. Uh, friends, your identity has to be built on who Jesus says you are. You are part of his beloved people. You're part of his chosen race, right? And last week, you know, he, we talked about how that means you need to be a priest, which means that your whole life is a sacrifice to him. Right? You're, you're, you're giving everything over to him, right? We're part of that holy nation. We're a part of the people who God says, these are mine and I am well pleased with them. <laughs> and this is what makes the gospel so incredible because if you're, if you're at all honest with yourself, right? If you have any modicum of like self-awareness, you'll probably think, I'm not really worthy to be called God's beloved. I mean, I'm not that great. I mean, maybe I'm a little great, but not that great, Right? Isn't it funny how prideful people always vacillate between like obnoxious arrogance and then like deep insecurity, you know? It's like we all, we all do that, right? If we're trying to create our own identity. See, but what God wants us to do is to know our identity is something we receive in Jesus Christ. We belong not because we earned our place at the table, in fact, if anything, the, the parable Jesus would say is like, we're like all of these like crazy people on the streets and God sends servants out and he brings them to the table and he puts his robes on us and he says, enjoy my feast. Right? It's both humbling and it's incredibly uplifting. Right? And it changes the way we see each other. You know, the church is meant to be a non-competitive community. 
You know, we're not in the rat race with each other. We're not trying to outdo each other. We're not trying to outperform each other. We're all here because God is gracious to us. We're all part of the family, not because we earned it, but because Jesus Christ earned it. And to pretend that I earned it is to discredit what he did for me at the cross. My pride is an offense to the cross, and it disesteems what he did for me. You see, friends, the identity that we need is we need to know that we are God's beloved people in Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And now he brings us, sinners though we are, and he names us saints. And he says that we're forgiven. And he says that we're in the family forever. Christian, have you received that yet? You know, they always say the longest journey, right, is what? From the sanctuary to the parking lot. No, that's just what men say. The longest journey... The longest journey, if wives will say, the longest journey is from your head to your heart, to your hands. I can conceptually know this, but has it gripped my heart? Christian, have you received your identity? Not just have you intellectually understood the words coming out of my mouth. Have you received your identity? Can you breathe easy? Do you know the joy that that brings? Well, how are you supposed to know if you've received it? Well, I think that's why... Uh, Peter follows it up and he says, okay, well, this is who you are. Know that you are God's beloved people. Now, here's the application. Now, here is how you respond. He says, we have a specific goal as Christians. Our specific goal is worship, right? Our goal is worship. Look at verse 9. He says, look, if you know you're part of his chosen race, his priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his possessions, if you know all that, here's the reason, here's the goal, here's the purpose. So that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, the goal of the Christian life the goal that we have, the reason we've been set apart, that, that God has called you out of darkness, has converted you, has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son, is so that you and I would worship. I don't know if you've been a part of you know, Christian traditions, uh, but sometimes we, we misunderstand what the goal is, right? You know, we have mission creep. We make secondary things the ultimate thing, right? So, uh, you know, John Piper, uh, the Baptist pastor, is probably more helpful than anybody on this point. Uh, so obviously, as a preacher, he cares a lot about missions, the, the need to spread the gospel to all of the nations and to all the people in your community that need to know the gospel. But listen to what Piper says in his famous book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper writes, missions, right, evangelism, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, in the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Why do we send missionaries out? Why do we tell people about Jesus? So that they would worship him. And one day, the mission will be over. And worship will continue. You see, friends, the goal is simply to proclaim the excellencies of him who loves you. 
to talk about it, to worship him. You know, Jesus tells the woman in Samaria, you know, who had been married five times, was living with a man she wasn't even married to. He tells her, the day is coming when the father will seek what? Anybody know? True worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says the goal is worship. Missions, missions goal is to get more worshipers worshiping. You know, I love that, that word right there, excellencies. You know, you may be thinking, that's kind of a strange word. What does it mean that I'm supposed to proclaim? I'm supposed to worship God. I'm supposed to talk about his excellencies. Well, that word excellencies is, uh, it's a famous word in Greek. It's the Greek word for virtue. And virtue uh, doesn't, we don't really use the word virtue anymore unless we use it as a pejorative, you know, oh, you're virtue signaling, you know, which is so sad because virtue is such an incredibly profound and important concept. Um, and virtue right here, when he says proclaiming the excellencies, really the, the definition of a virtue is the moral excellencies. You know, so like the perseverance, the loving kindness, the forgiveness, the joy, the patience, the goodness. All of those character traits are the virtues, all of God's moral attributes, right? And what you and I are called to do is to praise God for his character, and I mean, if you're really a Christian, if you're trying to understand how to share the gospel with people in this life, in our culture today, uh, what I would tell you is the debate is almost, it's almost, well, I don't want to say almost over, that's hyperbole. It is very rarely in my experience about whether or not there is divinity in this world or whether or not there's a God. And that's very rarely the question Christians have when they worry about whether or not they believe in God or they want to accept Jesus as Lord. You know what the debate is now? The debate, the question in everybody's mind, unbeliever and believer, is simply this. Is God good? Is he good? Does the Old Testament make him seem morally impure? Is his claim that salvation in Jesus Christ alone, is that narrow-minded? Maybe God is really some sort of miserly man in the clouds. Or maybe we've misunderstood him. You see, unfortunately, what's happening a lot of times in culture is I think we are taking our own self-created identity, which, full disclosure, is really just coming from the world. We are taking our own moral identities, our own moral standards, and then we are trying to assess God's morality based on what we think should be moral. You know why? It's because you're horrified by your grandparents' morals, right? But as Tim Keller famously pointed out, but guess what? Your grandkids are going to be horrified by you too. So, you know, what are you doing, right? The only objective standard on what's morally good has to be the God who is both just, who will punish sin, but is so forgiving and loving that he will receive the punishment for you and for anybody. We all long to see justice in this world. I mean, anybody here for injustice? I've never met somebody who's actually for injustice, right? Now, that's their, like, political campaign. We all want to see a world of justice. We all want to see a world of mercy and forgiveness. But, friends, that's only found in God. Only in God do we see righteousness as fully righteous and mercy as fully merciful. You see, friends, what we are called to do is we're called to proclaim that God is still good. Right? You want to practice? All the time. Well, that was convincing. <laughs> I can feel you want to try again. I will, 
I will let you. God is good. And all the time, especially today, especially today, his mercy is new to you today. All right, so know that you are God's beloved people and know that our goal is worship and to proclaim his moral beauties, his excellencies. All right, next up, last thing. Uh, I won't belabor this because I've already preached on this a bunch. In verse 11, he calls you beloved. Uh, But again, uh, Peter again repeats this idea of sojourning, right? He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Remember that precious soul that you have that's worth more than anything? The passions of our flesh wage war against that. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So we are sojourners. We don't quite fit in this world. Uh, Hebrews says uh, we have no abiding city here. We seek the city that is to come. Right? We seek the kingdom of God. Right? Seek after the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. As Jesus says about the things that worry us. Seek the kingdom. We are sojourners. We are citizens of heaven, not of this earth. And of course, part of the rub, part of the difficulty there is people are going to call us evildoers. Right? And what uh, Peter is saying is he says, yeah, people are going to tell you you're evil and morally repugnant, all kind of awful things, and you know, you're behind the times and on the wrong side of history. All that kind of stuff is going to happen to you, Christian, just like it happened to these Christians 2,000 years ago. But instead of just saying, well, I might as well just, why am I even trying? If everybody thinks I'm a, you know, a, a mess, why even try to be holy? That's the opposite of what Peter wants you to do, Christian. What Peter says is he says, okay, people are going to call you evildoer, but you need to know who you are. You're beloved. You are to be holy. You are a chosen race. You are God's treasured possession. So even if everybody rejects you, you need to follow Christ and know who you are. And therefore, look at verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. A few weeks ago, I suggested that our response to God's forgiveness is to strive for holiness, right? We don't strive to be holy so that God will later on forgive us. We strive to be righteous, to be honorable, to not speak ill of anybody so that even when people malign us, they can't really land a punch because they know that at the end of the day, we are honorable, that we are righteous, right? That's what Peter's saying. Keep your conduct honorable, So that even if somebody does call you evil doing, at the end of the day, they'll say, actually, you know what? This person is honorable after all. I mean, that's what Peter's holding out hope for, right? He says, so that eventually they will see your good deeds and give God the glory for what he has done in your life. So the second part, I guess, is just simply to know that you are a sojourner. And our response to that is to strive for holiness. But the only thing I guess I'll I'll finish with this on is... um, I think as a pastor, like one of the hardest things I do as a pastor, and I'm constantly trying to figure out how to convince you of this, because you're not, and I know you're not because I'm not convinced of this. It's a constant struggle. It's like God, it's like my heart is like hard soil, and every day I have to take this like, you know, stake, and I've got to like beat the gospel into my heart, right? Because every night when I lay down at bed, my hard soil like, it like pushes out the stake, and every morning I got to wake up, I got to like beat the gospel back into my head. I got to beat the truth of God's word every day. 
I've got to remember who I am and not let the world push out the truth, right? This is what you and I have a hard time believing. Number one, God is as good as his word says he is. And what I mean by good is I mean morally perfect. So morally perfect that you want to fall down and worship him. That you would join the angels and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's hard for your heart to believe that. That God is as good as his word says he is. That if he says you are forgiven, you really are forgiven. Second thing that's hard for us to believe is that sin is as dangerous as God's word tells us it is. Why are we supposed to keep our conduct honorable? Because our passions, those like innate desires, our anger, our frustration, our lust, these things come out of us. And what does Peter say they do? They wage war on your soul. It's hard for us to believe that sin is as dangerous to our lives and our relationships as God's word says it is. Because we sin all the time and it's so easy to justify it. I mean, think about like one of the earliest examples of sin, right? You got Cain and Abel, right? And, you know, they both give an offering to the Lord. They both give the Lord something. But what happens? Well, Abel gives of his first fruits and he gives more sacrificially. So God delights in that sacrifice. And Cain develops a very understandable grudge against his brother. You know, if you and I were his friends, you'd say, oh, that makes total sense that you have a grudge. Yeah, why didn't God like your stuff as much as his stuff? Abel's always showing off, right? I totally understand. You just got to do you. If anybody tells you differently, cut them out of your life. You know, that you just nurse that grudge because that's just unfair of God because God's not as good as his word says he is, right? You just nurse that grudge. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. Is that how God treats that sin, that very understandable grudge? In Genesis 4, you know what God does? God speaks to him. He comes to Cain and he says, Behold, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to devour you, but you must rule over it. And that very simple grudge that many of us would be totally sympathetic towards grows within his heart to become murder. See, friends, this is what the book of James tells us about sin, and it is not crazy <laughs> to run away like Joseph if someone grabs your cloak and you've got to run away naked because the righteous know that sin is as dangerous as God's word says it is. We know that sin wages war on our soul. What does Jesus teach us to say? Lead us not even into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Friends, as we close, you know, how important, how important do you think it is uh, knowing true identity? Uh, Christian, you are part of God's beloved people. And Christian, you are a sojourner in this life. And you are seeking a city that is to come. And at the same time, worship is your goal and holiness is your goal. You know, all this, all this stuff is already true for you, Christian. You don't have to earn this. This already is your identity. Um, aren't you ready to just stop covering up the hole in the wall? Now, friends, that's an invitation not to create your identity, but to receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us your beloved. 
Father, thank you that you gave your son for us and that we could eat at his table. Lord, that you bring us to the feast of the Lord. You set before us bread and a cup that we did not earn and we receive your spirit. Father, would uh, your voice be louder than anyone else's? And Lord, would we truly receive our identity in Jesus Christ? And Father, would you give us joy on top of joy? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.